And good morning, ladies and gentle people. Scott Colborn with Exploring Unexplained Phenomena. Hey, what's in your cup this morning? We've got some Costa Rican fresh ground and brewed in ours. Let me just reach across and grab mine. And I will salute you on happy July 6th. Holding up all eight fingers and two thumbs. You know the old trick question, show me your fingers. How many fingers do you have? Well, I got, I got 11. No, I got, I got eight. Now, Jim, as I relax here in splendid air conditioning comfort, why don't you update us as soon as I raise your mic with, mic. Yeah, with the weather forecast. Anything going on for weather today? Not a whole lot. Decreasing clouds, and uh, looks like no rain today. Chance of thunderstorms tomorrow, 40%. And it's currently 74 degrees Fahrenheit, 23C. So I'm mowing a lawn tonight. Good time. Yep. Hey, Colleen, how are you doing? Um, I'm doing very well this morning. And you're staying cool? <laughs> yeah, it's... um. Had an AC fix, so it's ah good news. Yeah, so it's pretty cool in our house. I I did the same as well uh, <laughs> last week, so just in the nick of time. Fantastic. Well, we've got a great show for us today. We've got uh, uh, first up Charlene with the Capital Humane Society. Then we've got Preston Dennett, and he's always a delight to talk to with such interesting stories he's collected. Our main guest is a first timer, Peter Biebergall. He's the author of uh, four books, including the latest, Strange Frequencies, The Extraordinary Story of the Technological Quest for the Supernatural. Let's join Charlene with the Capital Humane Society, and let's see what's up. Hi, Charlene. Good morning. Did you have a lot of uh, pets that were turned in to the Capital Humane Society because of July 4th? There were some, but um, Lincoln pet owners are doing a really good job. They understand they need to keep their pets safe, that the noise does just make them run further because they keep trying to get away from the noise. So uh, we're grateful for such responsible pet owners. That is good to know. You know, Charlene, I've observed something over the years, and I want to see if you agree with this, but it seems to me like pets pick up the behavior from their owners. If a person is noisy and jumps every time fireworks get off the animals are going to pick that up as well i think that it has a lot of truth to it they do pick up on our energy um so you know if we are calm and, and again just do things that help them to feel mm -hmm. safe it's going to be a better situation now this is Sherling with the capital humane society happy july 6th and uh we've got some great dogs and cats for adoption for you folks out there if you want to follow along at home we're at capitalhumanesociety.org and jim colleen i wonder what they've got cooked up for us in terms of events coming up well why don't we ask charlene 
Well, our Tales and Taps is coming up, and that is Saturday, July 13th from 12 to 4. And you can purchase tickets and learn a lot more about the event by going to our website at capitalhumanesociety.org. Um, so that's one of the things that you can do to help us is to make our fundraising event successful. Okay, Charlene and friends with the Capital Humane Society. Has Bob talked about that uh, Channel 1011 thing with the dog getting off the leash at all? <laughs> he has not, but I believe that dog is in a happy new home. So. Oh, good. <laughs> yes. He, he or she looked like he was really fun. I just I love the yeah. producer off the off the camera saying, "I'll get him." <laughs> Running the muck at Channel 1011. We love it. So. And thanks for Bob for getting pets out there, too, to, to showcase animals. So, Absolutely. We've got uh, cats for adoption. And who do you want to start with? We are going to start with Lovebug. <laughs> and Lovebug is a very cute cat. <laughs> He's mostly orange with some white, one-year-old, uh, medium-length uh, fur, fuzzy and friendly looking for a family that thinks he is the best cat ever okay love bug and sort of has a white uh, scarf like collar the markings around uh, love bugs uh, neck uh, cute cat see if you agree take a look at love bug capital humane society org and love bugs got a buddy which is Cashmere. Oh. And Cashmere is nine years old, a state female, such a pretty cat. She wants to be the one and only feline in your home, but she's really sweet, uh, will bring you a lot of happiness. So we hope that somebody with a calm home will come in today and ask for Cashmere. Cashmere is kind of uh, dark gray with stripes and uh, white feet, white chest, and beautiful green, light green eyes. Mm-hmm, exactly. Okay, and next we have? Next up, we have a perfect pair. So it's Chowder and Dumpling. <laughs> they are very bonded <laughs> and need to go home together. They are white cats, neutered males, domestic short hairs, a front oh, wow. clawed. So they are looking to be indoor-only companions. So if you're looking mm -hmm. for twice the fun and twice the cuteness, consider these two yes this is a pair of white cats so you definitely don't want to have them outside in a snowstorm <laughs> yeah th th these would be two fun cats you know i had jasmine and sananda and these were cats that interacted with each other uh one would be the aggressor one would be the uh chasey then they would reverse roles and they would uh sleep almost like that yin yang thing in their kitty bed uh, so, lots of fun. We hope you'll take a look at Chowder and Dumpling and make a great decision today. Um, what are your hours open today and tomorrow? We are open at our Pylock Pet Adoption Center on Saturday and Sunday from 11 to 5.30. Okay, great. Okay, dogs for adoption now. We will start with Kodak. <laughs> And he has one blue and one brown eye, really cute folded ears, a pit bull about a year old, a super, super cute dog, full of energy, does like to jump up and run and run. So he is looking for a family that will work on some basic obedience and provide him with plenty of training and exercise. Um, he's a happy dog and wants to be happy in your home. 
And I misspelled Kodak, too, because I thought it was K-O-D-I-A-K, but it's not. It's K-O-D-A-K, just like it sounds. You see, I just like the name of the camera. So, so you'll never run out of Kodak moments. <laughs> right. I was thinking, I think, is it Kodiak, Alaska? I yeah, think that's yeah. right. Okay. But Kodak, great-looking dog. Look at how happy he is. What a charming fellow. Uh, he's got a buddy whose name is? Rex. And Rex is a two-year-old Anatolian shepherd. He's a big dog, about 76 pounds. Wants to be your one and only canine. Um, he's very smart. Uh, looking for a family that will provide him with plenty of walks and playtime, and then he'll just want to settle in and get some pets and watch a movie with you. Looks <laughs> like he has some some distinctive markings on his face. Looks really interesting. Oh yeah, great looking dog. Uh, I sure love dogs. Okay, uh, Kodak, Rex, and. Next up is Fiona, and Fiona is a six-year-old spayed female lab mix. I think I see some border collie in there, really pretty. Uh, she's mostly black with some white, uh, just the sweetest little puppy eyes. She's been here for a while and is waiting for a family that thinks she's perfect. Uh, she does want a home with no other cats or dogs, um, but she is going to be a lot of fun for the right people. Oh, look at that face. Okay, Fiona um, has got that, that winsome um, uh, image that she's really looking forward to, to bonding with somebody today or tomorrow. And we'd love to have you uh, grab the family and go out and see these great dogs and cats for adoption. There's also a list on the CapitalHumaneSociety.org website of things you can take out and donate, um, such as... Uh, we always are grateful for donations. Um, we use a lot of Timothy hay. We do have a lot of guinea pigs and rabbits that come through our doors. Uh, canned food for dogs and cats is very helpful. And then we have an Amazon wish list on our website. That's a way to, that you can support us. That's a little easier to do. Just go ahead and go on Amazon and check out our wish list there. Well, that's a great idea. Okay, Charlene, it's always great to connect with you, and thank you for all these wonderful possibilities. Folks, we're talking about future dreams today, and what great ways to start them with a cat or a dog from the Capital Humane Society. So, Charlene, thanks so much, and have a great rest of the weekend. Thank you so much. The Capital Humane Society, make them the first place you go when you want to adopt a dog or a cat. I'm Scott Colborn. And we're listening to Exploring Unexplained Phenomena. Next up is Preston Dennett. And Preston, how have you been? I've been doing good, mostly, yeah. And uh, didn't you last month go to a big event? I did. Contact in the Desert was amazing. Okay, did three, you? Yeah, there was like three or 4,000 people. Met a lot of old friends, met some new friends. Saw Whitley Strieber there. Uh, Yvonne Smith, Barbara Lamb, very cool. And so at an event like that, do um, people hope for contact? Is there any sort of a close encounters, um, watch the skies night, or is it primarily lectures and discussions and things? Oh, with all of that. All of yeah, that. there were people out there. There was one night where they had a, a group sort of contact session 
People were out there with their night vision goggles, um, lots of private groups out there kind of just watching the stars. Uh, really cool place way out there in Indian Wells. Um, I think it's normally held in, in Joshua Tree. This was a new location. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it was amazing. Um, lots and lots of people from all over the world, really. And did you hear of anybody that reported sightings there? No, I didn't. I was kind of hoping because it feels like, you know, time for more open official contact is coming. But mm-hmm. I didn't hear of anything. Um, I don't know if anything happened or not, but I didn't hear of it. Mm-hmm. And uh, Riverside was the, the uh, site of a uh, large uh, earthquake and a number of aftershocks. I don't know how close you are or far away. Are you okay, Preston? I am okay, but definitely felt it, felt both of them um, for at least, gosh, almost a minute because the sort of the earthquake waves lengthened out as they go away from the epicenter. Mm -hmm. uh, I could feel them, I could hear them coming, and it just like being on a ship, really. Um, It didn't stop. It was a little disconcerting, to say the least. Um, Nothing fell off my shelves, but yeah, my neighbors had some stuff fall down. There's some people at work. Uh, Yeah, we we all felt it for sure, especially that second one. Boy, if if I was in a high-rise, I don't know if I'd want to be in a high-rise out there. (laughs) Yeah, I was on the third story of my condo um, several years back when the Northridge quake struck. And boy, that building just... Oh, my goodness. Well, we're glad that you're okay. And so far, according to reports, we haven't heard reports of anybody that was seriously injured or killed. Thank God. And um, I guess we're building stuff better. Um, Sometimes uh, in and around these earthquakes, there are reports of of people seeing UFOs. So you may get um, a bunch of activity and reports uh, just from that event. In the last couple of months, what have you heard about that's crossed your desk that, that's got you really interested? Well, I have to tell you, there's a lot. I mean, I've got ghost stuff. I've got um, several UFO stories. The one that really piqued my interest was the project I'm working on now, which is UFOs that uh, target schools, hovering over schools or landing at schools. And I'm collecting a bunch of cases and putting together a new book, and Purely coincidentally, while I was at contact in the desert, this lady comes up and starts telling me you know, how she's had contact throughout her life, and that she says I had a really interesting childhood encounter at school. And my ears perked up. I'm like, wow, really? And she just told me this such an amazing story. And uh, I'll, I'll just tell it to you. She was going to a Catholic school, an elementary school in Mentor, Ohio, back in around 1964, 65 or so. Uh, She's just a little girl, and everyone's out there on the playground playing, having fun, when her three friends start screaming and running up to her. And they're like, look, look, look at that. And way pretty far up there in the sky is this sort of egg-shaped silver metallic object. And it's descending. It's getting lower and lower and lower. (laughs) And... It gets real low until it's just above the treetops. And this is what I keep seeing in these cases. These objects are not high up. They're, you know, three, 4,000 feet would be extremely high for a schoolyard encounter. These things come down to about 100 feet. Mm. 
And uh, this thing was even lower than that, right above the treetops. And uh, she says suddenly she became almost entranced, not just, you know, from the sight of it, but there was something more to it, like it was calling to her, kind of, um, which is another thing I've heard. It's very interesting. And she says this thing actually came right above the trees, and she got a message from it. And... uh it came right in her head very clearly, very, like, word for word was, remember this day. And it said it twice, remember this day. At that point, it actually appeared to land behind the trees, uh, which is, again, another thing. 30% of the cases I've got of schoolyard encounters involved landings or humanoids. So it's not terribly unusual for something like this to happen in this context. What was the era or just the general, the year, the the decade that this happened in? This was around 1964. Mm-hmm. Um, she's at <coughs> And, uh, you know, at, at that time, there was a lot of activity, particularly the 1950s was very active, but throughout the 1960s, slowed down a bit in the 1970s. Uh, but, uh, yeah, it was a very active time in terms of UFO activity. And, uh, She's not sure how many people saw it, if the whole playground saw it or not, but she knows at least her friends saw it, (laughs) and they're all screaming, and everyone's jumping up and down and looking at this thing, and she's quiet because she's getting a message from it, and then, you know, they don't see it, it's behind the trees, but suddenly it darts off so fast it left nothing really but a silver sort of streak in the sky, and they all went, ooh, what on, and talked about it for a little while, and then completely forgot about it. Mm-hmm. No one talked about it. It wasn't an issue anymore. Uh, which is another thing that comes up. That these things can, you know, land right next to a school and cause complete chaos, and the next day no one talks about it. So. There was a, a gentleman that I met years ago, John Foster, and uh, I'm not sure if John is, is still in the area or not, but he reported... Um, that uh, it was a Havelock school and that um, uh, it was the sort of thing back in the 1950s that they would gather people together uh, on school playgrounds. As the sun would go down, they'd set up a, uh, a screen and they would show movies there on the playground. And people that lived in the area, school kids, their parents, etc., would come with lawn chairs and sit and and watch these movies. It was sort of, you know, an impromptu, if you will, um, walk-in, drive-in theater sort of thing. And uh, John recounted that that one night the viewing of this film was interrupted by a craft that came down. And uh, people went into, and I'm going from really distant memory, from a a state of suspended animation. Uh, And then after it was over, uh, very few people even remember that it had taken place. Um, they just thought there was a glitch in the film, and you know, let's watch the rest of it. So, wow. if I if I can track him down, I'm going to point him towards you for another another report for you. Yeah, that would be amazing because I've heard that too. One gentleman he contacted me, and he was, you know, part of band practice, was getting ready to get into his uniform, when suddenly time stopped. And uh, he fainted, he thought he fainted, 
And uh, next thing he knows, he's waking up and thought for sure his best friend had socked him in the face. <laughs> and uh, couldn't figure out what was going on. And another girl screamed, oh, my God, it's 30 minutes later. I'm late. And uh, he started having these memories of Grays coming in. One hit him with a wand on his head and picked him up and pulled him out of the school. It uh, doesn't remember what happened after that. But it's one of several cases I've got where you know, time is stopped, mm-hmm. so to speak. And Grays come in and take these children out of the school presumably into a UFO. Famous case from Australia, um, also one from South Africa, of uh, uh, UFOs and, and a school. And so right. anybody out there in the listening audience, uh, Preston is collecting these reports of UFOs interacting with uh, schools, with schoolyards, with kids. Uh, he'd love to hear from you. And Preston, um, how do people reach you? Uh, you can contact me through my website. If you just Google my name, it should take you right there. The actual address is PrestonDennett.Weebly.com. And, uh, yeah, definitely interested in hearing from people who've had a sighting like this or any weird experience or heard about it. Yeah, they occur all over the world. There is a very famous case in Rua, Zimbabwe, but a bunch of cases in Australia, England, France, Spain. Um, all across South America, Canada. I mean, this is a worldwide thing. It's absolutely, for sure, UFOs are targeting schools and have been for at least a hundred years. What was your, uh, um, what was your uh, uh, topic or your speaking uh, address that you gave at Contact in the Desert? Um, I did a double sort of one. I did one on uh, healing cases. Sure. Uh, Mm-hmm. and uh, another on the underwater UFO activity. Both are the subjects of my latest books. And, uh, yeah, it went really well. Got some more reports in that area as well. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, a lot of people are having experiences. It's amazing how many people um, are seeing this kind of stuff and don't talk about it. You know, I've had uh, probably uh, Jim, Colleen, Preston, as you folks have had, too, a lot of friends that have been maybe peripherally interested in UFO stuff. Mm-hmm. They've said, hey, did you see the, the newspaper report about the Navy, the Navy pilots? And so there's been kind of a groundswell of people talking about the UFO subject because of that being introduced back into the culture again. Yeah, I think we're going to see some more of that, too. And uh, we're going to pretty high-level officials saying it's time to take this subject seriously. And I'm super excited because it is a serious subject. It affects people's lives profoundly, whether they realize it or not. Mm-hmm. Uh, it could have an, a huge effect on society once this comes all tumbling out. I think it will. Mm-hmm. Colleen, anything you want to share? Mm, not really. <laughs> hey, do you, want to, do you want to leave us with maybe a, um, a, a ghost story? Um, yeah, sure. One guy contacted me. Real interesting story. Um, he wakes up because there's this child, a child ghost. He could see through it, and it's motioning to him and trying to communicate with him in some way. And uh, he's freaking out, and when he gets scared, the ghost gets all scared and uh, steps back. It's just this little boy, and he went screaming out of his room to go get his mom. 
And his mom's like, oh, you're just having a nightmare. And he's like, no, it's still in there. It's still in there. And he looks down the hallway and he sees this ghost walk out of his room and starts walking down the hallway. He pulls his mom out into the hallway and says, there it is. And she can't see it. She is unable to see this ghost, which he can clearly see. Interesting. Yeah, that's into other stories I've got where the kids see this stuff and the parents can't. So I don't know Hmm. the mechanics of what's going on here, but it happens often enough that it's definitely a thing. And uh, she couldn't see it and just assumed he was out of his mind or sleepwalking or waking nightmare or something. Mm Mm-hmm. And this thing just walks down the stairs and right out the front door. And he got this distinct impression that this was a past life of his, trying to communicate with him. He's a pretty sensitive guy. He's had a lot of other experiences, out-of-body experiences, and things like that. And I just got this real strong impression. And he even got the name of uh, this child, which, gosh, I forget what it was, but... I believe the last name was Coleridge, like the poet. Mm-hmm. And uh, looked him up and actually did find that name. And it uh, turned out it was another poet. So <laughs> he's not sure what to make of it or why this kid was trying to contact him. But it was by far his best and most vivid ghost sighting. And it was really unusual because it's not often that you know ghosts will communicate with a living person. Maybe there was something in one of those poems that would be of interest to that individual. <laughs> yeah, that's what I told him. I'm like, you should definitely dig into that a little further. And, uh, but yeah, he's got a whole list of unexplained experiences that have happened to him. He contacted me to help make sense of it. Preston, you are always so interesting to talk to. And uh, I missed you last month. I'm glad you had a great engagement at Contact in the Desert. And uh, we will look forward to talking with you in August. And there's going to be an August because my calendar says so. <laughs> okay, Preston. Awesome. Thanks so much for all that you do. Great to uh, connect with you again. Hey, my pleasure. Always always a pleasure. Preston Dennett, and uh, I don't know how he does it, but just type in his name, Preston Dennett, and he's going to pop right up in your favorite search engine. Um. PrestonDennett.Weebly.com Latest book is about UFO healings and runs, I think, in excess of 500 pages. It's a, uh, an eye-opener for a lot of people, especially those that believe that, that UFOs and the intelligence, or plural intelligence behind them, are out to get us. They need to read Preston's book. I'm Scott Colborn. We're going to connect with our main guest, Peter Biebergall, the author of Strange Frequencies, right after these words. It's great to have you with us as we all reach for our cup of coffee. Voice of the Blues in Lincoln, Nebraska, KZUM Lincoln and KZUM HD. Support for KZUM comes from ZooFest 2019, an annual two-day music festival featuring national, regional, and local musicians. July 19th and 20th, downtown at 14th Street. 
between O and P, with Mike Zito, Satchel Grande, Bruce Katzband, James Harmon, and Mavis Staples. Tickets, full lineup, and other details at Zubar.com. And? Out Nebraska, presenting the 9th Annual Prairie Pride Film Festival, delivering independent films featuring LGBTQA issues to a Midwest audience, July 11th through the 13th at the Sheldon Museum of Art. Full schedule, all-access passes, and individual tickets at outlink.org. This program is made possible in part by a grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support for KZUM comes from Playing With Fire's July Music Festival on Saturday, July 13th at Midtown Crossing in Omaha, featuring European artists Thorborn Reesager and The Black Tornado and Gunwood, plus local artists The Grace Giebler Project and Blues Ed Vertigo. Gates open at 3.30 with music at 4.30. Open to all. Details are at playingwithfireomaha.net. My name is Manny Morales. I'm 45 and I coach youth football. It's still hard to believe because the high school me was a work in progress. But big brothers, big sisters give me a real role model. And the young me needed a role model bad. My bigger brother's name is Ray. And Ray is the reason that this seven-year-old grows up to be a role model himself. Whether you donate money or time, you're helping Big Brothers Big Sisters help a child. Start something today at BigBrothersBigSisters.org. Brought to you by Big Brothers Big Sisters and the Ad Council. The full moon lights the silver rails winding around dark mountains and over steep gorges of jagged rock in one freezing cold rushing black mountain river. I wish there was enough time to describe all of the funny twists and turns that led up to now, but there isn't enough time because there's a ticking clock and the two passengers we care most about don't know anything about it. To see what happens next, visit read.gov to read The Exquisite Corpse, a riveting adventure pieced together by John Sheska, Shannon Hale, Daniel Handler, and other popular authors. Explore new worlds. Read. Brought to you by the Library of Congress and the Ad Council. Hi, I'm Vic Valverde, and I'd like to invite you on a musical journey of both sound and rhythm to a place I call Mesoterra. We'll travel far from commercial culture and just a step or two away from the abstract. So join me on Saturday afternoons, 3 to 5 p.m. for Mesoterra, right here on KZUM. Scott Colborn with Exploring Unexplained Phenomena. And it's great to have you with us, whether you're at the workplace or just kicking around home. First-time guest Peter Biebergall joins us. Mr. Biebergall writes widely on the speculative and slightly fringe. His essays and reviews have appeared in the Times Literary Supplement, Boing Boing, The Believer, The Quietus, and on NewYorker.com. He is the author of previous books, Season of the Witch, How the Occult Saved Rock and Roll, Too Much to Dream, a Psychedelic American Boyhood, and The Faith Between Us, A Jew and a Catholic Search for the Meaning of God. I was sent this book, and uh, uh, I thought, boy, we've got to get him on the program. It's called Strange Frequencies, The Extraordinary Story of the Technological Quest for the Supernatural. Uh, let's please welcome Peter Biebergall to the broadcast. Peter, good morning, sir. Hello, Scott. Tell us how you're doing. Very good. How it's very warm here in Boston today. 
but we might have some thunderstorms, and it should break a little bit for some uh, relief tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've got a background in uh, religious studies. I saw you attended That's Harvard. Right. And uh, w- was that with the idea of doing something with that, f- or was that something that you felt would make a person well-rounded for future endeavors? What was the reason for going and studying divinity at Harvard? Yes, yeah, so the, the program that I was in uh, was a uh, what's called a Master's of Theological Studies. Mm-hmm. But it's very oriented towards a more um, academic uh, study of, of religion. So a lot of people in that program mm-hmm. are preparing to become to go on to PhD programs, um, to become professors in the field, various fields. I know kid, you know, classmates of mine that went on to become scholars in Hinduism, uh, scholars in Christian history in Germany, you know, very wide range, uh, Buddhist studies, very wide range of, of interest that I found with my, my colleagues and classmates there. But some people did go on to do more, um, you know, other things like people went to law school. Other people did go on to do more uh, direct ministerial type work. Some people ended up as UU ministers and Episcopal priests. And, you know, it was really a wide range of associations there. My intention at the time was to become a professor of, uh, religious studies, but decided that the kind of writing that I preferred to do was less academic in tone and more for a, a, more of a general audience. So mm-hmm. I decided I was going to pursue uh, a non-academic uh, life as a, a writer and, and thinker of, of uh, ideas in the study of religion. I grew up playing in a rock and roll band and still went involved in that as a, a guitar teacher. And so um, several of your books just caught my eye immediately. Season of the Witch, How the Occult Saved Rock and Roll, and of course the Electric Prunes uh, title, Too Much to Dream. Uh, yeah. A Psychedelic American Boyhood. Boy, that brought back incredible memories, Bieber. Hello? Yes, sir. I say that brought back oh, a lot of, lot of memories. Were you a fan of of that uh, psychedelic era in terms of the music, electric prunes, and... Yes, so the uh, the book Too Much to Dream is part memoir, part cultural history. It details my own search for meaning within the psychedelic counterculture, Mm -hmm. both music and the drugs and looking at how my own sort of quest mirrored some of what was going on culturally. And for me, that ended up not being a very productive uh, spiritual path. I didn't, I didn't do very well with those methods. <laughs> I think it's a polite way to say it. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, the music and the culture, I am still all, you know, completely in love with. Um, I love that music. I got to interview some great people for that book. I love the culture. I still, I think that there's a lot of really terrific contemporary psychedelic uh, rock and roll bands right now. So I, 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 even though that 
the use of those substances was not something that uh, was going to work for me as a spiritual path. It it certainly it, the the music and the culture I still find a lot of uh, I can still have a lot of fun with. Mm-hmm. I've got a lot of resonance and agreement with, with what you've uh, just shared. I was heavily involved in that era myself um, uh, and uh, experienced firsthand. Uh, those uses of drugs and alcohol and uh, it was initially so we thought to change our consciousness and to open the door but after multiple experiences I realized that I kept going back to that door and opening the door and the door was already open <laughs> so that's right I was uh, I was able uh, perhaps uh, a lucky one to, to walk away from that but as you just said to still enjoy um, the uh, certainly the memories as well as the great music that came from that era and uh, the right. experimentation where people would try things the improvisation um, the three minute two and a half minute radio song was really out the door as we all tried to stretch out and, and through music try to find uh, uh, sort of a deeper deeper way so I, again, I just wanted to mention I really appreciated both of yeah, those. Yeah, no, I think, it, I think it's important. I think that there's an argument to be made that even the, the use of, of LSD um, and related things for some of the culture at the time was a very important fuel for the counterculture and, and helped in some ways uh, for things like the sexual revolution, for um, the anti-war movement, or civil rights, that there was a way in which uh, some of the experiences that people had in terms of consciousness expansion really did help them see the world in a way um, that probably traditional or more conservative religious um, ideas in America weren't weren't really allowing for. Mm-hmm. And so if you are a looking for uh, a revolutionary way of being in the world, then maybe you also need a revolution of the mind. And I think that there's, you know, certainly an argument can be made against that, but I, I definitely am sympathetic to that to that idea. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, it didn't work for me, um, but um, I think, you know, particularly in the 60s, it, it might have, even though there also were many, many casualties, acid casualties and other, and drug addiction became a real problem that there was some positive aspects to what uh, that culture and those um, those drugs were able to do in terms of uh, changing people's minds about about the normal, the quote, normal way that things should be, or the accepted way that things should be. Uh, this is Peter Biebergall, the author of the uh, 2018 book, Strange Frequencies. What first grabbed your interest about this as a writing project, Peter? Was it personal experience? Um, no, not necessarily. I, I think it, my, my interest, broadly speaking, is how religion sort of as a larger phenomenon, but recently in the last, say, uh, decade, uh, occult and supernatural and magic um, are part of the religious imagination and how those ideas have impacted human culture. And so I 
my my work intends not to prove or disprove any of these ideas, but merely to show that we have had an experience with them for millennia, and they have and continue to have a great impact on the way not only that we view the world, but, for example, in Season of the Witch, its impact on rock and roll and popular culture, and in this new book, Strange Frequencies, how we try to negotiate evolving technologies and the technological and technological innovation with these kinds of spiritual um, beliefs. But I did try my own sort of experiments in the book just to make sure that I was sort of not being too, um, you know, uh, not being too academic about it. I wasn't trying to study this as an anthropologist or as a historian. I was trying to study it as a journalist. And so in that meant that I had to sort of be on the ground talking to the people who work with some of these ideas, both artists and actual uh, believers and practitioners, and to see, you know, where that brought me. Um, I think my, when somebody asks me, do I believe in magic and the supernatural, my, my answer is, well, it's not really important whether I believe in them or not. What's important is that I'd like to engage with them and see what happens to my imagination and what happens to um, the way I, I understand, you know, culture and, and our spiritual lives. So mm-hmm. um, I guess it was personal insofar as I'm interested in the human spiritual condition, but I've never really had, while I've had deep spiritual experiences, um, I'm not somebody who, you know, lived in a haunted house or had, you know, had anything directly like that. And so, um, but I certainly met and talked to people that did mm-hmm. and got to, um, you know, um, bear witness to, to their experiences and, and how technology played a role either as a thing that uh, prompted those experiences to happen or a way to manifest those experiences or as a way of simply um, expressing those experiences. Uh, what do you think uh, underlies our interest in the, the possibility of a beyond, uh, either for us individually when we die or for the whole gestalt of life and then death um yeah i mean that's a yeah that's that's like that's sort of one of the big questions isn't it i think that mm-hmm. um i believe though that um most people when they sort of sit still and think about it for a moment can can perceive something um at least as an idea it maybe if not directly of something that we might call ineffable or um, inscrutable or just beyond our understanding. Maybe it has to do with the vastness of the universe or the age of the earth. You know, that I mean, just think how dinosaurs existed longer on the earth as a species than between the time they became extinct and and human beings have lived. (laughs) So we're talking, you know, when we think in terms of scale, 
just those ideas alone, billions of years and millennia of time and space, I think we would be, it's kind of cynical to suggest that, that, that um, you know, there's something about that that shouldn't prompt us to ask fundamental questions about the nature of reality mm-hmm. and, and what might be beyond us, and even the questions of consciousness. I mean, scientists would like to say, many scientists would like to say that consciousness exists and is perfect, will be one day measurable in the brain as a chemical response or biological response, but we just, we don't have evidence of that yet. So the, you know, the very nature of consciousness is, a, is still a mystery. And I think that when we meditate on that, it, it prompts us to want to ask these questions. I also believe that, you know, there was a time when people lived much more directly with nature and their environment than that they were probably having experiences that we would call deeply spiritual prophetic experiences that then they cast into texts and rituals and traditions, which is what we end up with. Um, so I think it's just, it's, it's hardwired into us to be trying to ask these questions. Mm-hmm. Um, we turn them, we turn those questions into all kinds of things like religion, uh, religions and rituals. And, and I think all those things are wonderful and should be embraced. I think the problem obviously is when they become something that tries to uh, close the door on ideas. And so I think magic in particular and occult practices in, in many ways in the West has to do with people feeling like they want to have some control over their own spiritual destinies. They don't want to have to rely on, say, the priest to mediate those experiences. They say, well, why can't I just use tarot cards myself and have a direct, unmediated experience with the divine? Why can't I use a Ouija board? Why can't I try to hack my radio so that I can try to hear the sounds of spirits coming through the ether, right? So all these things, all these activities, um, I think in many ways, and something that I try to uh, get to in strange frequencies, have to do with something about uh, wanting to be hackers of our own spiritual lives, Mm -hmm. wanting to get in there and and open up things and see what it's made of and not always have to rely on um, these uh, hierarchies, um, as they were. But then even there, you know, we know even occult uh, fellowships and societies have their own hierarchies, obviously. But um, So anyways, I mean, that's a long answer to an unanswerable question. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, When we come back from the top of the hour break, uh, tell us about uh, Automata, the the, uh, process by which people have attempted to um, hack or make things uh, that perhaps are just more than simply dolls, statues, figures, um, that they're uh, attempting in, in some ways to imbue these with, with uh, feeling, with, with even consciousness. And mm-hmm. we'll kind of leapfrog through the, the, some of, of what you experienced as, as you collected uh, information for the book. Uh, before we go, have you, have you ever heard of the man whose name is Mark Macy? No. Mark lives in Colorado, and uh, I, in a former occupation, I owned a, a metaphysical bookstore. 
and I came across Mark and his work with spirit photography. And so I invited him to do a number of presentations uh, in my bookstore. And he would bring a Polaroid camera. And he had... He had... Uh, set the camera up and he would have people pose for a picture and then of course the Polaroid film would develop immediately and there would be other images on the the Polaroid prints in addition to the people smiling looking at the camera right right and uh, amazing stuff I still have a uh, kind of a plastic box that I've got a number of those photographs in from from those days and uh, curious about that how that Polaroid could do that um, it didn't appear to be that he was uh, trying to put one over on us to, to hoax us uh, he's done a lot of work and I'll just refer people to Mark Macy, they can look him up on the on the internet and read more about him. But so this is Peter Biebergall, and an interesting topic this morning: strange frequencies, uh, the technological quest, and where that's led us from ancient history up to present day. What people are are attempting to do, and what they have done. Please stay tuned for a conversation with Peter Biebergall. I'm Scott Colborn with Jim and Colleen, and we are exploring unexplained phenomena. Hey, the voice of the blues in Lincoln, Nebraska, KZUM Lincoln and KZUM HD. Support for KZUM comes from family-owned and operated Butheris Mason and Love Funeral Home at 40th and A Streets in Lincoln, offering services that allow families to plan ahead according to personal wishes, chapel facilities to accommodate all faiths, and grief support materials for the family following a service. More information is available at 402-488-0934 and online at bmlfh.com. The KZUM Summer Concert Series runs every Thursday at 7 p.m. through August 1st at Stransky Park near 17th and Harrison. Next up on Thursday, July 11th, two great Nebraska songwriters in Omaha's Rascal Martinez and Lincoln's Andrea Von Campen. Plus food by Open Harvest. Special thanks to this season's sponsors, Dietz Music, Butheris Macer and Love, and Shirts 101. That's Thursday, July 11th, 7 p.m. at Stransky Park. Find out more on Facebook and kzum.org. Support for KZUM comes from Zipline Brewing Company, closing out Lincoln Beer Week with a Zipline house party. Open to all Saturday, May 11th from 4 to 10 p.m. at the brewery. Mango IPA release, food vendors, yard games, outdoor activities, and live music from Bogus Man, Twin Smith, Universe Contest, and Evan Bartles and the Stony Lonesomes. Details on Facebook and ziplinebrewing.com. My name is Manny Morales. I'm 45 and I coach youth football. 
It's still hard to believe because the high school me was a work in progress. But big brothers, big sisters give me a real role model. And the young me needed a role model bad. My bigger brother's name is Ray. And Ray is the reason that this seven-year-old grows up to be a role model himself. Whether you donate money or time, you're helping Big Brothers Big Sisters help a child. Start something today at BigBrothersBigSisters.org. Brought to you by Big Brothers Big Sisters and the Ad Council. Hi, I'm Dick Valverde, and I'd like to invite you on a musical journey of both sound and rhythm to a place I call Mesoterra. We'll travel far from commercial culture and just a step or two away from the abstract. So join me on Saturday afternoons, 3 to 5 p.m. for Mesoterra, right here on KZUM. with Exploring Unexplained Phenomena. Jim and Colleen are here. We've got some Costa Rican coffee in our cup, and it's great to have you folks with us. Our guest from Cambridge, Massachusetts, is first-time guest Peter Biebergall. And Peter, what can you tell us about automata? Sure. Well, the idea that we could potentially create life, obviously, is something that goes back a long time. In some ways, it goes back to the uh, myth uh, in, in Judaism, the legend of the golem, mm-hmm. and the construction of an artificial being uh, trying to use, in some ways, the same tools that God used to create. Um, there's also a great history of magics that involve talking statues Greek myths had a number of automatic, mechanical-type creatures. Uh, Talus was a uh, a statue. They were supposedly in in the Vulcan Forge. Um, A number of uh, creatures made of brass, uh, made of bronze and brass, you know, that kind of thing. We know that um, Hero of Alexandria use certain mechanical techniques um, to create what appear to be maybe statues of gods moving or doing some kind of performative function. And in the um, books, the what are called the Hermetic texts, there seems to be some suggestion of the uh, magic that used astrology, that used the planets, was intended to sort of bring down the spirits related to the planetary forces and imbue them in statues that would then communicate uh, to folks. So there's a long history of that. Um, What we see with the development of, of clockwork technology, though, in the 16th and 17th centuries that mm-hmm. there was an explosion of interest in trying to see if using these techniques people could create artificial life. And part of that came out of a work 
of uh, the philosopher uh, Rene Descartes, who said that he made an argument that essentially human beings are just machines, that we are imbued with a spirit, which some have gone on to call the ghost in the machine, but but physically we're, we're just these sort of put-together things that are essentially automata, automatons that are imbued with a spirit. And so people took that to say, well, then, if human beings are machines, why can't we make machines also? And so there are a number of remarkable devices that came out of that time. Um, if you've seen the movie or read the book, um, Hugo, The Invention of Hugo Cabaret is the title of the book, but the movie Hugo, which I, I'm not sure, I don't think Spielberg directed it, but in any event, it's about a uh, automaton that writes, that was based on a famous one. Along with that one, there's a, a young a young girl that plays a harpsichord, and there's a there's a boy that plays a flute. There's a famous duck that uh, digested food. So there there are a number of these sort of wonderful inventions at the time. But there was also a tension there for a couple of reasons. One, it goes to this idea of, of the uncanny, which is seeing something that looks human but isn't human and the feeling of unease that that might give you. But it also goes to the problem of when something would act as if it was human, doing things like writing or playing a harpsichord, people understood those were, um, those were things that only human beings should do. And human beings are able to do that because it, they were given this, these gifts by God. And that's because God imbued us with a soul. And so if you have a human-made thing that can play the harpsichord, to play music, you must, by, by extension, also have a soul. But since God did not make that thing, that that soul or that spirit must come from something demonic. So people were often afraid of these devices, thinking that they might be imbued with some uh, demonic or, or, or devilish power. Mm -hmm. And so part of that was this tension that existed between, and it, and it always, of course, continues to speak to the question, should we be creating life? What are our responsibilities in creating life? What does artificial intelligence mean? Is it something that we should allow to grow beyond our capacity to control it, or should we let it become completely independent and 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 evolve at its own in its own time and by its own will? So these were the early days in which people were were asking these questions. But for many, uh, the, the, this was more to show off the abilities of the clockmaker than it was to try to convince people that anything was alive. But if you look at the ways in which these things were uh, advertised when people would go, uh, you know, to showcase them at performances for the public, they often used occult and supernatural language to sort of heighten that feeling of the uncanny for people. Um, so, and then of course there's the, the story of Frankenstein, which only added to people's unease about this idea that we might somehow, the human being might somehow become involved in the creation of life.
Mm-hmm. In the book, I meet with a a, a, a a horologist, a woman who is an expert clockmaker and repairs clocks, and I went to her studio in which she showed me a number of these uh, automata and these, these, these devices. And, you know, there were moments in looking at these things when you look into the eyes of this mechanical banjo player and you know that it's not alive and you know that it doesn't have a soul and yet there's something that happens to uh, our consciousness that allows for this moment of enchantment and i think that that's going to be very important i think and i i hope in our conversation because i'm much more interested in in states of enchantment that I am in whether or not these things actually exist. I, I really can't tell you whether or not spirits exist. I, I can't tell you that anything like a spirit photograph actually captures the image of a soul or whether or not a radio can actually pick up the voices of the dead. But what I can tell you is that these using this technology somehow is able to enchant us in a way that makes us ask these questions, and I think that that's that's what's most valuable here. Mm-hmm. Um, I sometimes have to be honest. I, I, I've disappointed both believer and, 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 and atheist alike because I don't want to answer that question for people. I don't think it's an important question, at least for my own work. I think what's more important is to see can we suspend disbelief and, allow, and, and, and exist in these ambiguous states where... I can look at a mechanical bird and know that it's not real, it's not alive, and yet feel as though it is actually alive, and that that's an amazing thing that, that can happen for us. Um, and I think it can deepen our spiritual connection to the world when we allow ourselves to uh, just exist in those enchanted states. Our guest is Peter Biebergall, and uh, let me give you... Uh, information here. Uh, You'll find uh, Peter on Facebook. Uh, Peter, and the last name is spelled B-E-B-E-R-G-A-L. And his publisher is Pendum Random House. And you'll find, uh, I think you'll find that book easily if you type in Strange Frequencies, comma, Peter Biebergall. You'll find more information on the book there. The uh, Tibetans had a practice that they, through intense meditation, believed they could create a, a, a being, a consciousness that would have form, that would interact uh, and move about. Uh, there were a number of warnings that went along with that. I'm not a, a student of Tibetan Buddhism, but I've just read about that, that uh, if one tries to, such as Frankenstein, to create that vessel in which the consciousness is stored, at what point do we voluntarily or um, without our consideration or okay, at what point do we give up control of that? And at that right. point, is that, is that vessel containing that consciousness, is that, quote-unquote, alive? Right. And this is a question that people who consider themselves transhumanists or posthumanists are grappling with today. I mean, what they are hoping to do is that one day we will create 
essentially pure, purely technological something. Maybe they're robot bodies or they're other kinds of machines that we will ultimately upload our consciousness into, and we will no longer have a physical body. It's post-human, post-humanism, right? Um, and in some ways, we, we already um, have certain kinds of cybernetic things that we do. I mean, you could even argue that a missing limb uh, that's reattached using a, a robotic arm or leg that has senses that connect directly to the nerve endings and can be controlled by the brain or, uh, you know, all those things are lending it to the, the, the transformation of the human body into something that's almost purely technological. And then there is that question of, well, what happens to the consciousness? Where's the soul? Is it just in the brain or is it outside the brain? If it's outside the brain, how do we download it? You know, there's, these are all the questions that, that we have to contend with. So a, a sub-theme that surrounds this whole conversation is one of consciousness, isn't it? Yeah, it's all, always about consciousness, mm -hmm. I think. Um, what was your experience at Lilydale like? Yeah, that was a neat place. I, um, so I'm, I don't, I'm sure your listeners know about Lilydale. The, it's an intentional spiritualist community in upstate New York. It's, it's a township. They have a library and a post office and a museum, and you can lease property from the from the town to own a home there. Most of the people that live there consider themselves mediums, and I went and uh, was able to sit with a few mediums to do some things like a table tipping and some uh, forms of uh, what they call trans trans, uh, you know, morphication of their faces under red light. And all along, though, I was there with the photographer Shannon Taggart. I was not there to have an experience with a medium. I was there to have the experience following a photographer who was there to photograph mm -hmm. medium. So Shannon Taggart is somebody, she's a um, wonderful photographer and she spent many years documenting Lilydale, taking pictures of the people that uh, live and work there, pictures of people who have come there for readings, visiting mediums. She's given talks there. And part of what's important about what Shannon does is that she also, and I think she's had a big influence on me and some of this thinking, is that she also says that she's not there to prove that spirits manifest themselves on camera. Um, she wants to create states of, of ambiguity. She wants her photographs, when you look at them, to say, hmm, I'm not sure what's going on there, but something's going on and it's strange. Is it a trick of the camera? Is it a trick of my perception? Is it spirit? You know, just to sort of open up all these questions. She, one of the quotes in my book, which I love from her, she says, I'm not here to clarify anything. And I think that that's an important thing. I think when we start to be too um, literal in our in our discussions of things, we lose an opportunity to have more enchanted and, and interesting experiences with them. Mm -hmm. So I watched as she took photographs of these mediums and then looked at the photographs later with her. I also went to an actual old-fashioned seance with a spirit cabinet 
and a medium. This was actually not on Lilydale property, but, but in the area where a medium had a sit in, in complete darkness and, you know, it, it, as what he described, manifested um, a number of different spirits who played the drums and spun, um, you know, trumpets around and clapped and yelled and made all kinds of sounds. And then at one point he um, extruded uh, ectoplasm, what he, he described as ectoplasm, and Shannon uh, was able to take some photographs of that of that experience. Um, so, you know, again, I think what you have here are a number of different elements at play, and I think it's also important to note that um, a lot of the history of spiritualism does involve uh, techniques of performance, and those that, but that doesn't make it any less true or false. It just means that it's important for um, the medium to create a ritualized performative space, just like they did in Greek theater with the god Dionysus. You have to sort of shape the audience's consciousness by using these techniques and to allow sort of for something else to, to come through for sort of that quote magic to take place. And I think that a lot of what I what I witnessed was these techniques at play that could very easily be explained, but inside of that were some things that were not necessarily explainable, at least, you know, from just my sitting there. And so it was very interesting, you know, to, to have that experience. Mm-hmm. Um, what would you, I, you know, what I, would you say that as a uh, observer uh, about the the extrusion or release of this ectoplasm <laughs> if somebody were to have suddenly flipped on bright lights in the room, would it still be there um, what do you think that was? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, the history of ectoplasm <clears throat> photography is one that's that's fraught with both some of the most eerily beautiful photographs you'll ever see and some that are so ridiculously fake um, using cheesecloth and cut-out pictures from magazines that, you know, it's, it's very difficult to parse that. Um, in this case, you know, the, what's hard to also get away from is that without the, if he just, he needed to have it in, in, in all the, all, all the things around it, the fact that he was sitting in a spirit cabinet, the lighting, the, the way he spoke about it, the, the way he moved his body, the sounds that he made, all of those things lended, so you can't, you can't take one away from the other, I think, which is an important part of this. I mean, just, just think about the techniques of magic, okay? Let's say that you, um, let's look at something like the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, right? One of the great turn-of-the-century magical organizations who, if you're a practicing magician or a cultist today, you definitely have been impacted by the Golden Dawn. So in the context of the Golden Dawn, in their lodge rooms, you have, uh, during a ritual, you have people in costumes, you have certain colors on the walls, you have 
um, ritual implements like the dagger and the and seals related to the spirits that you're trying to to maybe uh, invoke. And then you have the words that you say and the sounds of them and the way that you say them. And so if you take all of that away and then a spirit, and I don't even know if, let's say this is all literally true, if the spirit even could emerge. The point is, is that you need all of that performance. You need all of that ritual for this experience to take place, right? So even in the context of a medium, all of that is part of it. It's all part of the decoration. It's all part of the of shaping the consciousness of the audience and, and in some ways the medium themselves, right? So that they become a vessel for, um, for this. He would often say, you know, things like, you can't interrupt him. You can't yell out. You'll, you'll do something to him which could be dangerous because his state of consciousness is in such a precarious place to be open to whatever's happening. So I don't know what would happen if you turned on the light because if you turn on the light, not only maybe does the ectoplasm look fake, but now you've diminished the entire ritual and performative elements of, of what is essential to what's happening to the audience. I know this sounds complicated, but I want to I want to instill this idea that magic and the supernatural and the occult are so dependent on the ritual and the and the and the dressing, the dress up of it. But that doesn't make it less fake. It just has to do with the with going back to what you said. It, it it's all about consciousness. Mm-hmm. This is Peter Biebergall, and the book that was released in 2018 is Strange Frequencies: The Extraordinary Story of the Technological Quest for the Supernatural. And the foreword is written <clears throat> by Mark uh, Pilkington, the author of Mirage Men. Lily Dale of uh, was um, or is a modern-day offshoot of what we know as spiritualism uh, that uh, flourished during uh, the late 1800s. And <clears throat> was, was the uh, belief again or the interest because of people wanting to have a direct revelatory experience and not so much have to go through a intermediary source yeah i mean you're in a very well it's not to have a, also a direct experience but let's take somebody who might be a, a devout um catholic or even protestant at that time and uh your loved one dies in the civil war okay and and it's great that your minister or your priest or your church is telling you that they're fine in heaven but that's not always satisfying, especially during something that was so traumatizing, you can imagine, as that war must have been for people. Mm-hmm. So the local medium, though, tells you, I can, I can communicate with your son. Come here, and I will let you speak directly to him. You know, that, the urgency to want to have that connection, I think, especially during uh, the Civil War, was something that um, is, is also a big part of its of its popularity then. I also think, you know, you're dealing with a time when um, the scientific revolution and industry, and it doesn't seem as though maybe there is still a place for spiritual things in the world. 
and nothing's changing in the Bible that you're reading every day. Your your minister is saying the same things over and over again. Your priest is performing the same rituals over and over again. And here's something new. And what's important about spiritualism is that it aligned itself with science. It tried to be rational. It used the language of science to describe what it was doing. That's why spirit photography was such a valuable tool at the time for for spiritualism, because it also showed that these spiritual things were not in opposition to technology. Not only were they not in opposition to technology, they used technology. There's a wonderful, you can read some of these old um, spiritualist newspapers and books at the time, and they talk about how the spirits were essentially waiting for us to invent the camera <laughs> so they could communicate with us, right? Um, because they will, we just weren't ready to be able, uh, technologically sophisticated enough to be able to capture those images. We had to rely on things like dreams and prophecy mm-hmm. and other things, and um, you know, te- or tarot cards or rolling bones and looking into scrying mirrors. Now we have a photograph because our, as our technology advances, the spirits are able to use those tools. Um, to uh, to make themselves known. I, you know, one of the things about the photograph is again, the it's not as if um, the the photograph is calling the spirit. It's as if the spirits are around all the time. You just have to be able to have this new quote medium to be able to have it um, imprint on the photographic plate. But in in some cases, some of these books will describe it's the spirits themselves that are manipulating the chemistry of the plate. It's not that that they are actually having an interaction with, you know, the technology to to make themselves appear. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, so yeah, I think that these uh, these things offered people a way to connect. you know, people didn't. People wanted to connect with their lost loved ones. I mean, one of the things about spiritualism is it's people tend to not go to a medium to say, "I'd like to communicate with," you know, some uh, movie star that passed away. They 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 want that emotional uh, connection to to a loved one. Mm-hmm. In the uh, UFO literature and the uh, broader umbrella term paranormal literature there are things uh, that are referred to as apports. Uh, I was at a oh, conference, yeah. Peter, last November in Laughlin, Nevada, the Starworks uh, UFO Symposium, and two gentlemen who are known as the Navajo Rangers, both with backgrounds in law enforcement in the Navajo Nation, gave a really interesting presentation on their re- research into uh, paranormal events and experiences among and around the Navajo Nation, and one of the oh, things yeah, they, ta- that was they they talked about these reports where these coins, oftentimes at lectures or conferences that they would be doing, these coins would appear, and oftentimes they were fairly rare coins, and at at some point valuable coins. Um, and not just one, but sometimes a whole handful. It was as if these things were falling from the ceiling. 
without anybody being up above the false ceiling tile, you know, dropping coins down on the on the stage or the audience. Uh, mm -hmm. And they had uh, some of those coins at their at their table, their exhibit they had during the conference. So um, we. I, I like what you said about spirits are around all the time. There are those of us, and I suspect you're one, Peter, that at times it feels like we walk around with a baseball glove on just in case we look up and there's that softball or baseball <laughs> coming down out of the sky so we can catch it. Uh, we know that things may happen, and we, we go about our lives course of Bain traffic laws and crossing streets and things, but we're also open to this other realm that at times does extrude, does, does come into our consciousness. Uh, good place for a break. Let's go ahead and take our bottom of the break here, Peter, and when we come back, let's talk about some modern technology that you experienced, including the, uh, uh, the reel-to-reel uh, tape player that you've got from your father, your experience with what are called ghost bo boxes, etc., in this technological uh, quest that, that you're documenting. Okay? Yeah, very good. This is Peter Biebergall, the author of Strange Frequencies, The Extraordinary Story of a Technological Quest for the Supernatural. I'm Scott Colborn. Stay tuned for more. Voice of the Blues in Lincoln, Nebraska, KZUM Lincoln and KZUM HD. Support for This Week in Lincoln comes from the venues listed here. This is live music happening this week in Lincoln. On Saturday, July 6th, Brondo starts at 8 at the Bourbon Theater. Brave Combo plays the Zoo Bar at 6, followed at 9 by Charlie Burton and Or What?, and Quake's Foundation Audio Takeover with Chad Dubs and Teffa starts at 9 at Duffy's. On Sunday, July 7th, Zularius begins at 8 at the Zoo Bar, and Nathan Dean and Goodnight and Bale come to the Playmore Ballroom at 8 p.m. That's live music happening this week in Lincoln. Full moon lights the silver rails winding around dark mountains and over steep gorges of jagged rock and one freezing cold rushing black mountain river. I wish there was enough time to describe all of the funny twists and turns that led up to now, but there isn't enough time because there's a ticking clock and the two passengers we care most about don't know anything about it. To see what happens next, visit read.gov to read The Exquisite Corpse, a riveting adventure pieced together by John Sheska, Shannon Hale, Daniel Handler, and other popular authors. Explore new worlds. Read. Brought to you by the Library of Congress and the Ad Council. Hi, I'm Dick Valverde, and I'd like to invite you on a musical journey of both sound and rhythm to a place I call Mesoterra. We'll travel far from commercial culture and just a step or two away from the abstract. So join me on Saturday afternoons, 3 to 5 p.m. for Mesoterra, right here on KZUM.
Scott Colborne with Exploring Unexplained Phenomena. It's great to have you with us as we finish our conversation with, uh, with Peter Biedrigal. I want to remind you folks that next week we've got a return of Mark Nesbitt. He's the uh, gentleman that lives in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, and is the author of the series of books, Ghosts of Gettysburg. Um, we'll talk about that uh, incredible battle uh, in July of 1863 and what still plays out in and around Gettysburg. Our guest next week, Mark Nesbitt. Uh, Peter, you had uh, the occasion then to hear about and start to tinker with uh, spirit boxes or uh, from Frank Sumption, Frank's boxes, these ghost boxes. Mm-hmm. What did you What did you find? Well, I, I didn't find much, unfortunately. I, I did again find um, that I was able to enter into a wonderful moment of being that kind of hacker and and taking apart a radio and and really for the express purpose of breaking it and resoldering some things and seeing if I could try to capture some otherworldly, as it were, uh, sounds or voices. And there were a few little blips and blorps there, um, but nothing that was, you know, quite as remarkable, say, as some of the photographs that I saw Shannon take or even the moments that I had in the um, in the workshop of, of, uh, of Nico, um, the uh, horologist. Mm-hmm. Um I, I but, believe the field um, is the field is called uh, initially instrumental transcommunication or ITC. Yes, and then EVP or electronic voice phenomena. 
Um, I think one of the things that I, I saw with some of the EVP material, though, is that it, 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 it does not really allow for that, those moments of, of really engaging with them in, a, in an interesting way. For example, if you watch some EVP things on YouTube, sadly, the uh, people will caption their um, will caption their videos so that you are forced in a way to hear what they decided they're hearing, right? Um, and then your mind can't unhear that. So if I hear on the radio that the ghost box at the YouTube uh, person uh, has made, and I he- and it's it you hear it say I hear it say, uh, you know, below the fold, but he captions it, "Hello, old Joe." Then now it's "Hello, old Joe," and that's he's decided it said "Hello, old Joe," and now I, you know I so I don't have this other experience with it. Um, so I think that there's a tendency in the EVP community to be a little bit literal around this material rather than, again, allowing the uh, audience or the user to shape their own experience, which is what I was able to do. And again, you know, it was interesting, um, but I think it takes a lot, a lot more time than I had to really uh, dive deep. Now, the woman I worked with, Donna Hogan, um, who's an, a British EVP practitioner and investigator, provided me with some of her own recordings, and I found those to be very uh, enchanting and interesting, more so than anything I was able to to get on my own. Um, so there's definitely material out there that's really wonderful. Some of the original recordings by Constantine Rodive, um, which you can probably hear some on, on YouTube, are really, really interesting. But I again, I, I think that there's a there's an industry there of EVP um, apps and um, digital uh, things for your phone um, that I don't find quite as interesting as the old-fashioned put your microphone in a room with a tape recorder, leave for an hour, come back and and listen back to the to the tape mm-hmm. if anything has uh, emerged. The gentleman I referred to earlier, Mark Macy, uh, he himself had a phone call that he recorded from the departed Constantine Rodov that was a multi-minute uh, phone message. And uh, it was very interesting to hear Mark. Uh, he referred to the work of George Meeker, uh, Constantine Rodov and others in their attempts to try to capture um, these uh, these voices, this communication. Uh, one of our colleagues, uh, Peter, is Rosemary Ellen Guiley, and she's been on location before in, in areas that purportedly have a degree of, of haunting going on and uh, have had multiple uh, ghost boxes set up. And she said what is very interesting is that one would expect 
a whole bunch of random words and phrases and names to be uttered. But she said when it gets really interesting is when there are three people there and this ghost box says all three of their first names. And she said that takes it out of the realm of maybe I just caught a, a skip of a radio station out of Indianapolis that happened to say, you know, Rosemary at that precise instant. Um, have, have you uncovered that same sort of thing where it starts to get more and more as if, wow, there is something going on there with that phenomena? I mean, I'm, you know, unfortunately, I have to be honest with you, I haven't. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that part of one of the, the things here is that it, it's, hot, it's, it, it's not always consistent. You know, mm-hmm. and I think even EVP practitioners will tell you that. I mean, sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. And so there's a question, well, why does it work? Sometimes and why does it not work? Sometimes and um, Donna uh, Hogan uh, describes it as saying, you know, you're you're not talking about somebody with a voice box who's communicating. You're talking about a disembodied consciousness that's trying to break through, right? And it doesn't have a voice. It has to manipulate the electromagnetic frequencies of the, and the diodes and the radio and make something try to come out. That's one explanation for it. Um, I do think that human uh, perception, intention, and um, uh, you know have a lot to, to lot to do with it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I just don't know. I I, I say um, again, for me, um, of all the wonderful and and weird experiences I had writing this book, I would say, unfortunately, EVP provided the least. Um, Sort of remarkable, remarkable things, um, but that's not to say that you know there certainly aren't docu- documented um, sort of experiences that mm-hmm. um, taking them at face value can can seem pretty um, remarkable. With your real to real tape player that you got from your father, you wrote that you were um, reluctant to use that because you weren't sure if you wanted to hear the voice of your father. Exactly. Yes. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm quite superstitious about those kinds of things. And, you know, I'm very open to things happening. Um, so I had this reel-to-reel. My father had died a couple of years ago while I was working on the book. I, uh, Donna, in fact, was the one who told me I should use the reel-to-reel as a, as a recording device. Um, and, you know, I, I don't want to sort of give it away. There's an end note in the, in the book where I describe the experience I did have with that reel-to-reel that um, ended up being very powerful in any case. Um, uh, but, yes, I mean, I, I went into all these things ready and, and open to whatever I might experience. Mm-hmm. And, and, um, and in some ways, like I said, the places of ambiguity, the places of not quite sure what I was hearing, uh, not quite sure what I was seeing, were the times where I felt the most uh, enchanted, the times I felt the most uh, connected to some uh, spiritual uh, reality. Mm-hmm. If, if, if you could elect to have, by your own choice, a personal experience for Peter Biebergall, that would be tailored to you, that would convince you beyond any shadow of doubt 
that it was real of contact with either another consciousness of an aspect of another consciousness perhaps if you will a family member if you could elect to do that would you do so I wouldn't, well, I mean, this is going to open up a whole other can of worms. I probably <laughs> wouldn't do it with spiritual things, but I would definitely, my desire, my and this I didn't write about this in the book at all, really, um, but I, I sort of did. I want to have the, right, I will say because I did write about it in the book, I want to have the experience that Roy um, has in Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Right. <laughs> that's, that's my dream experience is to uh, connect with a uh, completely alien, other earthly, uh, potentially mul multitude uh, advanced uh, te technology of another uh, uh, civilization. Um, so yeah, Roy, uh, you know, when uh, in Close Encounters of the Third Kind, when Roy is sitting in his truck um, and the light uh, paralyzes him and gives him the sunburn and then he sees the craft race down the highway uh, give me that one that's that's the one okay well that's a good place to to uh, say goodbye because we're going to wish that for you uh, and when you when you have that experience I hope that you'll recognize that please come back and tell us about it I will certainly will uh, my last question is, uh, what does Peter Biebergall do for fun or for enjoyment? Well, I'm a huge uh, comic book and uh, role-playing nerd. Um, I, I still collect comics. I uh, love uh, role-playing games, and um, I listen to tons of music, and I still listen to that psychedelic music that you and I were talking to um, sure. at the beginning of the show. Yep, I can hear it right now. I had too much to dream last night. Yep, great stuff. Oh, one of the best. Okay, Peter, uh, thank you so much for taking time from your weekend schedule on July 6th to be with us. And uh, thank you for allowing us to talk about your work and your life and your, your uh, oversight here on, on the strange frequencies. Um, I wish you well, Peter. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. Have a great day. Peter Biebergall, you'll find him on Facebook, B-E-B-E-R-G-A-L. He's the author of the Penguin Random House book, Strange Frequencies, The Extraordinary Story of the Technological Quest for the Supernatural. Coming up next week is Mark Nesbitt. He's the author of the series, The Ghosts of Gettysburg. And uh, I was reminiscing just this week uh, of what had taken place there prior to and up to the 4th of July in Gettysburg in 1863. Um, still, for me, at times, an incredible event to consider and to think about, um, as well as the, uh, the aftermath. It was the battle that decided the Civil War, and so much happened there and so much continues to happen. I remember um, one of our former segment guests who talked about having a sister that lived in current day Gettysburg in a house that overlooked one of the main streets. 
and she said that it was not unusual for her sister to walk down an upstairs hallway and glance in a bedroom of the window that would be overlooking the main street and see Union sharpshooters standing next to the window looking down to see if they could see any any Confederates. So stuff is still going on there. We'll talk with Mark Nesbitt next week. He and his wife, Carol, actually live there in Gettysburg. Still on my to-do list. I want to go there and check out Gettysburg sometime. Yeah, I, I think I'd like to, too. So we've got a program coming up called Beta Radio. We don't know yeah. what's going to happen. We still don't know. <laughs> Explosions, <laughs> whistles. There's no one out in the green room here that I can see. Yeah, there is. Oh, is there? Yep, okay, I've, great. I've seen somebody out there. I'm, are you sure it's not a ghost? Well, that I can't tell. Okay, well... <laughs> We'll find out, I guess. Yeah. Uh, Jim, so what do you have planned for the rest of the weekend here? Well, you know what? I'm probably going to go listen to some voices in the static on the ham radio bands. Frequencies. And uh, Colleen, what are you up to? Mm, not too much this weekend. Just rest and relaxation. We've been just kind of... It's been one of those weeks where you're just going and going <laughs> and going. So it's just like rest and relaxation. Okay. And you've already heard me say I'm going to mow a lawn tonight, so that's what there I've got are. in store here. I think I'm going to put that on my son's calendar for today. There you go. Yeah. Yeah, if, if we've got cooler weather and a little bit of a dry patch, we've got to get it done. Thank you so much, folks, for your support in all ways of exploring unexplained phenomena. We appreciate our relationship with you. Thank you so much for being out there as we gather around the radio, the computer, uh, Etc. every week, and we have such interesting guests as Peter Biebergall. Stay tuned next week for Mark Nesbitt and always interesting stories about the ghosts of Gettysburg, as well as some history of, of what happened there in 1863. Thanks so much for listening. Stay tuned for Beta Radio. And until next week, walk in beauty. <laughs>